liturgical types, minister types, called the first Sunday after Easter, Low Sunday. And it is because the enthusiasm is much lower than it was the week before, as is the population scattered in the pews. And personally, for me, it's a low Sunday, I will share, in that yesterday I came down with something of a stomach virus, and I'm feeling a bit low myself. It would be appropriate, I think, with this morning's service that somehow, in some providential way, I do not understand, my body does not feel good, as we are talking about the resurrection of the body in this morning's passage. It comes to us from the gospel according to John. John is the only gospel writer who tells this story, and as each gospel points to a certain focus or meaning in its gospel to a particular culture and community in which it is addressing, John's gospel is that as well. We've heard this story preached as Doubting Thomas, and let me say I think that's not a fair rub for Thomas that in fact there is something about Thomas that we can all learn from and uh, be open to. Maybe we can even rename him. Hear now the word as it is given to us, beginning in the 19th verse of the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that is the first Easter, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, shalom, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but have faith. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him and to us, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. A while back in Atlanta, I was invited to a retirement party for a minister friend of ours. And unfortunately, for circumstances I couldn't avoid, I was late to the party. Apparently, several of the ministers had put together this wonderful skit that in 10 minutes went through the whole minister's career and much of his life. It was, in essence, a roast. 
So I got there just in time to find it over, and all the guests lying on the floor rolling in hilarity and laughter. I had no idea why, so I tried to get somebody to stand up and tell me, and as they tried to tell me, they just started laughing even more. I felt so left out. Finally, someone came up with the words that bring the whole conversation to an end. He said to me, well, I guess you just needed to be there. That's, in essence, what is happening to the gospel John in his story about Thomas. In this passage we read, it's the first afternoon of Easter. The disciples are gathered together in a house and the doors are locked for fear of the authorities that they might do to the disciples what they had done to Jesus. They had circumstantial evidence that Jesus may still be alive. Peter and probably John, although it just simply says the disciple whom Jesus loved, ran to the tomb early that Easter morning only to find it empty and the burial clothes strewn aside. And Mary Magdalene had reported that she had encountered the risen Christ while in the garden. While she was crying that he had been stolen, he came to her and called her by name. Then he told her to go tell the disciples, which she did. Yet they still had not encountered the risen Christ. None of them had true evidence. Huddled together, wondering what it all meant, in some mysterious way, with the doors locked, Jesus just shows up and stands in their midst. Does he pass the locked doors like a ghost? But John wants us to understand he was not like a ghost, at least as we think of him. He was not an ephemeral spirit, so much as he was a new kind of embodiment a new kind of body, no longer confined by space and time. If you can figure that out, you'll understand more than Paul, who said, Lo, I tell you a mystery. That's what we get. It's a mystery. And while standing there, Jesus spoke to his disciples clearly, and he says to them, Shalom, the Jewish word for peace. Peace be with you. Apparently, they were as yet not aware that he was Jesus, the risen Christ, until he then held out his hands and showed them his woundedness and showed them the wound in his side. Then, seeing his body, the text says they recognized him and were overcome with great joy. Then John adds this strange little piece to the end of that part. John says, then Jesus breathed on them. I can't help but imagine what this encounter must have been like. Were his wounds still bloody from the trauma two days earlier? Or had they, in fact, begun to heal in some sort of divine, heavenly manner? Was he completely exposed standing there in front of him like Adam stood in front of God before the fig leaves were made? The text says his burial cloths were thrown aside. 
So what was he wearing? And when he breathed on them, was his breath sweet or sour? Like the pungent scent of Easter lilies or the musky smell of death. Then he gives them his peace. He gives them peace, shalom. And also he charges them, he sends them forth to go out and forgive others. If you forgive the sins of others, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of others, they're retained. And it was his last word to them collectively as a body. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells the story differently. We know the story of Pentecost, at least some of us do, when the disciples are huddled in a house or an upper room, he calls it, and the Spirit comes like a mighty roar, a rushing wind, and then lights on them like dove, and from that point on, the church is born. But that Pentecostal event in Luke happens 50 days after Easter, hence Pentecost. In John's story, it happens the night of Easter, Jesus breathes on them the breath, the Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach, the same breath that God used when God took a handful of dirt out of the ground and formed it into the first human being and blew life into it, and voila, there was Adam, the first human, which means ground or dirt. Jesus breathes on them and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then he gave them their marching orders. If you forgive the sins of any, if you retain the sins of any. And he tells them it is clear they are now being sent. That is to say, what they would learn would be they are now being sent as the body of Christ into the world. Not an ephemeral spirit, but a living, breathing, material body of Christ into the world whose mission was clear. It's all about peace and forgiveness. Just as he had appeared to them mysteriously, he mysteriously vanishes from their midst. Thomas, we are told, is not there. It leaves me wondering, where was he, this doubting Thomas? The Bible calls him the twin. Who, for whom was he a twin? Quite edgy, progressive theologians say that John wants us to know that he was Jesus' twin. Now that changes the story entirely and I think stretches it past understanding. I think maybe we're meant to understand that Thomas is our twin, our doppelganger, our identical other in the world that we are supposed to see ourselves in, this twin. Thomas doesn't get Jesus' body or woundedness and doesn't believe. He is late to the party. It is one of those things that you have to be there to understand, and so he is left apart and disconnected from the whole joy of it for a week. He missed it. So I go back to where was he? 
Maybe he was so afraid he just locked himself in a closet. Or maybe better, he was not afraid at all and was out wandering the streets. He had heard Mary Magdalene had seen the risen Lord. Maybe he too too was in search of this risen Christ. And he walked the streets calling out to him as a parent would call out to a lost child. Jesus! Jesus! Whatever. He comes back to the disciples and he's left out of the party. John says it takes a week for him to be brought back in. A week. They're all together this time. The same room. The doors are locked. Jesus comes and stands before them. And he says to them again, Shalom, peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas and shows him his hands and his side. After Thomas had said to the disciples, unless I put my finger there and touch it, I will not believe, Jesus offers it. The text is not clear whether Thomas takes him up on it, but it is clear that in that offer, Thomas confesses Jesus as now the risen Lord. That's the story John gives us about the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples. And only John told it. It doesn't appear in any other place. And it leaves me asking why. So this is why you send us to seminary. You read the commentaries and you learn that the community that John was writing to 60 years after Jesus' death, almost two whole generations, was in the midst of a battle with a philosophical group of people that call themselves Gnostics. At the risk of losing you to too much intellectual fact, just hang in there for a second. The Gnostics believed, like the Greeks before them, that there was this dualism of our existence, that we were human and material and we were spiritual, and that the spiritual was the God-given best part of us, and the human was the broken, bad, ugly, messy part of us. So the Gnostics' whole point was to become more and more spiritual and rise up higher and higher out of the world and out of our bodies, because they were like gravity that kept pulling the spirit down, to get higher and higher up out of the world and closer to God. John, facing that culture that's in his church, wants to make sure that we understand that the embodiment of Christ in the incarnation of Christ, as well as the new embodiment of Christ in his resurrection, is not evil. That, in fact, matter matters. Bodies matter. Matter so much that we are given the promise that when God will reconcile all things to himself, he means all things, material, spiritual, body, soul, all in one. You see, what Thomas was asking for was the truth. Does body matter enough here that you will show me your woundedness? So instead of doubting, Thomas is laying for us the whole foundation that the church is to be built on, 
That is, that we will become an embodiment of the presence of Christ, that it matters. Now, I know we've all grown up believing that old Greek thing, that we're half soul or half body, or that and when we die, the body uh, it sloughs off and the soul rises to heaven. But you see, that's being taught that we are bodies that have a soul, when in fact what John is telling us is that we are spirits or souls that have a body. And there's a totally different understanding, if you think about it. We're not bodies with a soul. We are souls with a body. We embody these bodies. It's an enormous theological leap that John is making in this post-resurrection experience. And it, and it must leave us asking, why is this so important? Because... It's so important. This is the whole ground of being that we stand on. Disconnected from our bodies, in the Gnostic way, that means my body doesn't matter and neither does yours. Disconnected from our bodies means that your pain and suffering doesn't matter and neither does mine. Disconnected from our bodies means that we are disconnected from the ground of earth. Therefore, it's bad too and we don't have to care for it disembodied from the material, thinking we are living life up here, we are disconnected and disembodied from our true selves. This is so important. I've been reading some about the Celtic faith, not recently, but in the last few years, Thomas uh, Newell and others uh, have sort of brought it back to our awareness. And did you know that the Celtics existed throughout Europe until the Roman Empire and the Roman Church began to persecute them and send them into hiding, finally over into western Scotland and Ireland. There were few of them left. The Celtics understood that faith was always a, a, an embodied experience. They understood that, you, that your eyes and what you see through them matters. If you look through greedy eyes, your whole spirit is full of greed. If you look through jealous eyes, you are infected with jealousy. If you look through hateful eyes, you're infected with hate. If you look through forgiving and loving eyes, you are redeemed into God's way. Eyes, ears matter. What you hear from voices, Jesus says, peace be with, they matter. Touch matters. Touch our fingers can be the presence of the most incredible moment of love and caring and then in very, very inappropriate ways it can be an evil expression of abuse and power. Bodies matter. Our feet matters. Where we are taken on our feet matters. Everything about this world matters in this resurrection account, and it is not given to us in order to get us out of the world, but as Jesus said to them, to bring us back down to earth, back into the world where we become this body of Christ who are peacemakers and forgiver persons. Jesus' words of peace 
to them even was a way of embodying. He says to them, shalom, shalom. If you've ever worked in a nursery, you know that if any hospital nursery, you know that if any of the infants starts crying, it will go viral immediately. All of them in their little bassinets are prone to start crying too. And so nurses have learned in, nurse, in, the, in the ward to put on a tape of the heartbeat of a mother, that comforting sound that the infant received while still in the womb. And it goes, lalom, 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 lalom. And the infant quiets. This embodied heartbeat. And I think it's no coincidence that Jesus stands before them and says to them, Shalom, Shalom, Shalom. For that is the embodiment of the presence of God's heartbeat. Peace be with you. Now we, who are called the body of Christ, are sent into the world to be peacemakers and to forgive just as we have been forgiven. I invite forward those who will be installed and ordained who were not bodily with us two weeks ago, but their hearts were here nevertheless. 